0: Hello, and welcome to the new season of Tez Pedagogy, the podcast which brings you everything you need to know about teaching and learning produced by the editors and writers at Tez. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom practitioners today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a Features Writer at Tes, and for our first podcast we're going back to 2019, when John Dodolsky sat down with Tez editor John Severs to talk about what makes for effective revision practice. Donalski is a professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences and a Director of Experimental Training at Kent State University. He is widely accepted as an expert in this area. His 2013 paper, Improving Students' Learning with Effective Learning Techniques, Promising Directions from Cognitive and Educational Psychology, is still hugely influential in classrooms around the world. When Year 13 sit their exams this summer, it will be their first experience of an external assessment having received center to assess grades for their GCSEs in 2020 due to the pandemic. Those sitting their GCSEs, meanwhile, will have experienced two years of disruptions to their learning that leaves them in a position unlike any other cohort before them. Ensuring that exam students are aware of and know how to use effective strategies for revision has therefore never been more important. It's also important to know what doesn't work when it comes to revision. To start their conversation, Donolsky and Severs discuss some of the common poor practices, the use of highlighters, and simply rereading content without engaging in it.
1: Everybody uses highlighters, it's no surprise, uh, but yet some students, uh, thank it's a small uh, percentage of them, feel that kind of highlighting really helps improve their memory for the content. And quite a bit of research suggests that it has a relatively minimal impact. That is, it really doesn't help you learn the content. With that said, I would never take a highlighter away from a student. I have my own favorite highlighter I use all the time, but students need to know the highlighting is is really the beginning of the journey, where they're trying to identify the content that's most important for them to learn, and then they need to go back and engage with that material in a way to really improve their long-term retention and understanding of it. But highlighting itself really is relatively inert. Now unfortunately, many students when they go back to review what they've highlighted or what they think is most important in a textbook or their notes, they often engage in the material in ways that aren't very deep or that kind of are passive relatively shadow, shallow. And one of these ways is simply by reading the content. As you go back and you reread it, and unfortunately when you reread something, everyone has this experience, it it feels fluent because you've already read it before. That fluency can produce kind of a, a um, an illusion of knowing, like, wow, I really must have this down well. When in fact, often we could get that illusion when we're really not that engaged with the material. Our mind is wandering. uh, We've read it before, so it's kind of boring. It's not as engaging. There's nothing wrong when a student doesn't understand something. Of course, they have to go back and reread. But when they understand it relatively well and they're trying to learn it for, say, long term, really get it durable knowledge of that content, rereading really doesn't work that well. In fact, some studies show that a student who goes back and rereads doesn't get anything out of it. That is, they'd better off not even looking at it again because rereading is inert. They need to do something that's more engaging.
2: Does that mean that they um no matter how many times they might reread it, it still doesn't, you know, let's say You've highlighted it, you reread it and then um you think, Okay, have I got this and mm, I'm gonna I'm gonna reread it again in just before the exam, maybe. And and does that does that not have any effect still or are we talking about I've highlighted it, I've reread it and then I'm not gonna touch it again?
1: Right. It it could have a minor effect. Again, distributed practice is great. So if you took the same simple content and you came back every other day to reread it, that will probably have some impact than merely just rereading it the first time and never coming back to it. It's just if students can use that same time they use for rereading, doing something that's more engaging, and they'll get more bang for their buck. So it'll be a much better use of time. So rereading is not entirely inert. It's just not the most effective strategy, and it can lead, again, to this um, illusion of knowing, that is, you feel like you know it because it's fluent, when in fact you won't retain that content for a long period of time.
2: So as a teacher, and you're perhaps in a a lesson, and. And uh you say, "Oh, you know, look in your books, you know we're going to revise this topic today and those those kids you know read it, and they ask and the teacher says, Okay what what did you know and they they repeat it to you and you think, Good, they've got it they they probably haven't is is the answer then in in that in that situation
1: well, yeah, they probably yeah you know, there's a good chance they don't have it because now what they're doing is regurging something that's kind of in short term or temporary memory that It's good to know at least if they can repeat it then, at least they were attending to it, which is a great sign because I'm sure some of the students go back and, quote, unquote, reread it. Their mind is wandering, so they're not even getting it into memory, so they couldn't repeat it. But just that initial repeating immediately after rereading or reading the content, yeah, it doesn't necessarily indicate that they're going to remember that content over the long term, say, by the time they're tested on an important high-stakes exam or something like that
2: so why do you think we use highlighting so you said yourself you've got a favorite highlighter and you know if i'm preparing for a big interview i'll I'll underline things and actually when i was preparing for this this podcast i thought actually how often do i actually remember what i underlined and i very rarely do i remember what i underlined but why do we sort of fall back on that as as this sort of you know first base of of revision if you like
1: well you know one is just Totally intuitive. I mean, the reason why I highlight, the reason you probably highlight, and many students is we're just trying to indicate what do I need to learn? What's the most important thing? Uh, again, I use a lot of highlighting because when I want to go back to that material, I know what I need to focus on, so I don't have to read it all again or engage with all of it. I can just focus on the content that's highlighted. Makes plenty of sense. Also, I think. For me, because my mind wanders like everybody else's, um, highlighting at least gives me the sense that I'm staying on task, right? So it helps me to keep paying attention as I'm reading. Nevertheless, uh, it really has a relatively minor impact on subsequent memory for the content. Again, I I wouldn't tell students not to do it. Uh, It just don't assume that that's really going to take the place of – deeply engaging with that material
2: do you think it's useful then perhaps as a a first step or even like a primer even a you know getting getting in the groove if you like to 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 use a phrase i guess but uh, in terms of okay i want to revise this is the nice introductory task just to just to get me in 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 the movement of okay i'm focusing on this or is it even not that effective for that
1: well i you know certainly it's within our comfort zone so i would say it's a great way to start Right. Because, again, you're identifying what you need to know. And and when students take notes, for instance, because most students uh, at least say they spend a lot of time engaging with their notes, more so than textbooks. um, uh, Often they take notes that are highly relevant to the course content, and then they take seductive details that they don't need to remember. And it can make subsequent restudy more efficient if they just highlight the content that they think they're gonna be tested on, right? So it kind of helps you in, again, subsequently restudying to identify that content that you think is most important with your highlighter. But doing it per se isn't gonna help you necessarily memorize uh, that content. So definitely, I'd say start uh, with your highlighter, but don't end with the highlighter.
0: Having established what doesn't work Danofsky goes on to share what does work in revision. Here, he discusses the value of retrieval practice and space practice, which three years later have now been widely implemented in schools.
1: A good way to explain it is to talk about the two active ingredients for successive relearning. And there are about 100 plus years of evidence showing that these active ingredients have a real impact on the durability of students' knowledge when they use them. And the first active ingredient is retrieval practice. That is, instead of going and rereading, say, content, so going back and reading all the definitions you need to learn for an upcoming test, you test yourself on those definitions. So what is the meaning of positive reinforcement? And then you try to retrieve the meaning of that um, particular term from memory. It'll have a much bigger impact on... Subsequent performance than if you just reread it, so retrieval practice is an active ingredient of successive of relearning okay? The other active ingredient is space practice so um, that is you attempt to retrieve a concept from memory uh, you continue attempting to retrieve that until you can get it right during a single session that's using retrieval practice to a criterion right you you If you miss it one time, you again go back and restudy it, and then subsequently in that learning session, you try to retrieve it again. Then if you get it right, just like if you're using flashcards, you could put that aside. The key is, though, you have to come back. That is, two days later, you engage with the same material again in a spaced way by practicing retrieval again. So, for instance, for positive reinforcement, you might miss it during the first session, not know what it means, you restudy it, you try again, you miss it again, you're struggling, 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 until finally you can retrieve the correct meaning of positive reinforcement. When time goes by, even with that good retrieval attempt behind you, you'll still end up forgetting. I mean, it's just the nature of human memory. Hence, you need to go back and use that same strategy again on another session. So on the second session, you try to practice uh, retrieving positive reinforcement. It turns out you'll get it quicker than you did in the first session. And you keep going until you get get it right in that session. And then if you have a lot of motivation, two days later, a week later, you do it again with the same content and it turns out successively relearning that is using retrieval practice until you get it right and then relearning it on a subsequent session produces highly durable uh, learning of that content.
2: So if we take retrieval practice first do we know how long we need to struggle before we we say no I definitely don't know this let's go and relearn it is there a set time you know if you waited five minutes would it suddenly come back to you? Or is it two minutes and then restudy? Do we have that sort of information? Um,
1: yes. Uh, it turns out um, something that's coming back to you that you can't retrieve could happen. But in the context of learning new content, it's unlikely to happen. So with my example with positive reinforcement, if you can't come up with a definition relatively quickly, it probably means you're not going to get it. So The question is, when is it best to then get feedback? In my mind, it's probably easiest just to immediately go and restudy that definition, look at examples of positive reinforcement, and so forth. But research shows it doesn't hurt if you delay that feedback. So you know you missed positive reinforcement, but you want to test yourself on other definitions. So you can test yourself on others, and then at the end of that session, go back and look at the definitions and try again.
2: Uh, do, you, do you change the question as well in terms of, does it have to be, you know, if you if you struggle the first time, are you asking exactly the same question the second time and the third time? Or is there any gain in rephrasing the question for the same answer? You know, I, I don't have a,
1: we don't have data on that particular question, but my intuition is that, <laughs> excuse me, that it could matter. And just depending on how you phrase the question, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. So, for instance, when I use some of these techniques when I'm studying, if I'm struggling with positive reinforcement, I'm really not getting it. You know, I've I've tried to retrieve it multiple times and restudied it multiple times. What I might do on that next try is instead of just having the cue positive reinforcement, what is it, I would give myself positive reinforcement and part of the definition to help me out right? And then the next time I would take part of the definition away until I can retrieve it all from memory. So basically reducing the size of that cue to push me and encourage me to eventually retrieve it all from memory, which again is going to be a struggle, right? Much harder than necessarily just rereading the content, but yet it's that struggle and eventual success that will lead to long-term retention of that content.
2: And I guess there's, there's a similar question around spaced practice in the sense that how long are we, do the increments between sessions, if you like, increase with time as, as you become more comfortable with the, with, with the content, or is it a set set distance of time between each session to the point, I mean, up to a point where you're going to use this in an exam or, or use this in a presentation?
1: Right. There's a bit of a debate in the literature about what's the best schedule for uh, space practice. However, in my mind, often the debate itself does not extend to education because students have a truncated amount of time they can use the strategy in. So <clears throat> for instance, with just, you know, if students wait to the last moment, the last couple of weeks to start studying, you can only space so much, you just have only so much time. What I tend to recommend to students is, you know, uh, try to space your practice of the most critical content in this way two or three times before the exam, and then the night before instead of cramming all night, use that last session ch- just to review all the material again. Um, for longer periods of time, however, if we're talking across years, it probably is better to, again, expand that spaced schedule. So the first time you come back to material, it's relatively soon, after a couple days. Then if you get it right that first time when you come back to it, then wait a week, and then wait a month, and after a while, it's gonna be part of uh, what's called semi-permanent knowledge. You just will not forget that content. Most students don't have the luxury to do that, however. Mm.
2: And does it, how individualized is, is that is that journey? I mean, I mean, what sort of cognitive processes are, are, is it reliant on, and how different are those processes between, say, two or three individuals in a class?
1: Okay, what I love about successive relearning mm-hmm is that this strategy is outrageously individualized to each student (laughs) because let's just say you and I are studying the same content and using this technique and let's say for whatever reason I have a little bit background knowledge, I'm a little bit more fluent in that content, it may only take me one or two tries to correctly recall that content in the first session until I can correctly recall it from memory. You may be struggling because you just don't have as much background knowledge as I do. Hence, it may take you three or four tries to get it right. With that said, the key is that we both are going until we get it right. Yeah, it may take you longer than me, but if we both persist until we get it right, we're going to get that same major uh, boost in our retention of that content. Mm -hmm. One individual difference, though, that uh, could disrupt or improve learning in this context, and that might be clear if I give you an example here, is students' ability to evaluate whether they are correctly retrieving the content. So for positive reinforcement, um, a relatively complex idea in um, psychology, students could retrieve a definition of positive reinforcement that is not correct. Okay. that a teacher would say, well, yeah, that's kind of right, but it's really not right at all. Mm-hmm. So to use this technique well, especially for complicated material like conceptual definitions that students need to know, they also have to be really careful to check the quality of what they're retrieving from memory. What I recommend students do, instead of just trying to retrieve, say, conceptual definitions or um say, long explanations for processes like, say, how does bat echolocation work, so just retrieving that from memory in your head to actually externalize it and to write the definition out. By writing it out, it allows them then to physically compare what they wrote to the correct definition to the feedback, Mm -hmm. and that comparison can then help them evaluate or monitor, do I have it correct, or yet am I still confused? If you don't do that, then they run the risk of, okay, well, I recalled something. Uh, If I recalled it, it must be right when it's not, and hence you could be retrieving the incorrect information and hence learning the incorrect content. So an important part of successive relearning and making this work well (laughs) is to make sure that you evaluate correctly whether or not you're recalling the correct content. For simple stimuli like learning foreign language vocabulary, uh, that's pretty easy to do because you just match one word to another word do do I have the right word for definitions? It just takes a little bit more work
2: and I guess in that in that in that process you have a you have a problem as a teacher because you're gonna have to individualize quite a lot i mean is there a risk that let's say the average person in that class needs um free sets of uh free sessions? To, to get it really like hammered in, but at the top end of that, you have someone who got it first time. How is how does that impact them? Are they just bored and it doesn't really matter, or are they are, are they learning it even more, or how does that impact that person?
1: Well, that person certainly in that context would be overlearning, okay. and quite frankly. I can only imagine that could get boring for them. This particular technique, successive relearning, how we have been viewing it, is it something that the students would use on their own outside of the classroom as they're preparing for exams? So a teacher, in when I teach my own courses, I give students concepts that I want them to know and then just expect that they will go out and learn them on their own. And if they use this technique outside of the class, well, they'll really be well prepared. But note. By using this technique outside of the class, the student who's already on top of things will quickly realize they know it and hence can stop and do something else. Whereas the student who's struggling a bit, you know, can keep going until they get it right. So I don't think the technique would be as easy to use within the, the uh, context of a classroom.
0: Knowing the strategies for effective revision is one thing. But there are other factors which come into play when relearning content. This year's cohort will undoubtedly experience nervousness leading up to the exams, having not experienced these sorts of high stakes assessments before. Motivation too will play a huge role. Here, Donovsky highlights a lack, the lack of research around motivation. This is something which has moved on since 2019. In 2020, Peps McCree, the Dean of Learning Design at the Ambition Institute, for example, published a book specifically looking at the science behind motivation. In this section, Donovsky and Severs discuss the importance of teachers being able to intrinsically motivate all students to persist with successive relearning, especially those who are struggling.
1: So the question is how to intrinsically motivate students to continue going until they get it right. I wish I could tell you. How to intrinsically motivate students to use this technique effectively so that they really can learn the most important content in classes and learn it so they retain it for a long period of time. What I can tell you, however, is that most students are already using successive relearning quite a lot and are becoming quite proficient at many things. For instance, Almost every student is good at something, almost everyone is good at something, whether it's uh, playing video games, uh, dancing, playing musical instruments, and so forth. And the way folks get good at those things, they don't realize it, but they use successive relearning. That is, you play your video game one night, you keep playing it until you do well, and then you struggle some, you get bored, but then what does the student do? They go back the next night, and they play the same video game. That is successive relearning. So the key is how do we help students realize that what the technique that is allowing them to master skills outside of education is the same technique that they have to engage in to excel in education. That's something that our particular research group is really on and interested in. It's just that like many others before us, Uh, we have not figured out that magic pill to really get students to uh, do those more effective but yet more effortful strategies that's going to lead to the best outcomes.
2: It seems like motivation research is a really quite complex area of of academia and and education research in particular. what what drives people and you know whenever whenever uh, certain theories come to light in, in you know especially from cog science people say well, okay what role is motivation playing there what role is emotion playing there and you get you tend to get the same answer which is a bit well, we don't really know and is that a problem or is that just the nature of the beast in a way well
1: i you know i think it's a problem uh, from a <sighs> Scientific perspective because until we really understand it, it's hard to control it. And motivation is going to drive educational outcomes. Uh, and this is more descriptive if a student's not persisting in their study, and then we could just describe it as that student's not motivated. If we truly understand the core aspects of motivation, well, then it seems like we could help students control it more and get them more engaged. What I think a difficulty is, however, is that sometimes, at least in education, people believe that simply, simply motivating students, giving them the right mindset or grit, is going to help them out. And it turns out I could develop a really good motivated student who wants to achieve, who thinks they can achieve, but yet if they don't have the right tools to achieve, that is the right strategies and the right background knowledge, they will still struggle. So. There's a sweet spot between getting that uh, motivated student on the one hand, but yet a motivated student who has all the right tools at their disposal so that when they are engaging in content, they really are capable of learning it. So just the belief that you're capable is certainly not enough. It also has to be the belief and motivation along with the appropriate skills. That's why, for instance, when you have the belief that you can become a good drummer, Well, that's possible, right? But you're really gonna excel when you go and start getting lessons and someone giving you all the right strategies to drum well. And that along with the motivation to become, I don't know, a famous drummer in a band, is what will help you to excel uh, into stardom. Well, it's the same thing goes for education. We need both a a motivated student, but a motivated student with the right skills and strategies.
2: And you mentioned before that perhaps trying to do space practice and retrieval practice within the classroom may be problematic because the kids are all at different stages of, of that process. Does the teacher role therefore become more about trying to create that motivation for them to do it in their own time, perhaps rather than walking them through those retrieval practice and space practice elements within the school day?
1: Right. Uh, First, uh, what I meant to suggest was that successive relearning, where you're struggling and you keep going until you get it right, Mm -hmm. for at least some students with difficult material, may just take too much time for a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. With that said the active ingredient of retrieval practice and space practice is still something that teachers can engage in uh, relatively effectively in a classroom without uh, disrupting class or taking too much time. For instance, uh, giving a good multiple choice quiz daily, three or four questions, and then repeating some of those questions over time for the most important content can help those students learn that material. And it does so for two reasons. First, just obviously engaging in retrieval practice. For all those students who already understand the content and retrieve it correctly during that short amount of time, well, they'll get a big bang for their buck, and they'll retain that knowledge better. The good news is for the students who are struggling, and in that same amount of time they miss those questions, it helps those students realize, I don't know this content. So then outside of the classroom, they can go study more go talk to the teacher like, you know, you keep asking me this important question about this content that you want us to know, and I keep missing it. What is going wrong here? So I think some of these strategies teachers can use, but just the full-blown success of relearning may take too much time. For, for instance, the, to successively relearn just 10 conceptual definitions that might be important for a class takes college students about 40 minutes the first time. That's a real amount of time. Now, the second time they come back two days later, it takes 15 minutes. The next time, uh, the third session, two days later, it's going to take them five minutes because as you really begin to understand and retain that content, successive relearning or retrieval becomes very efficient and fast because they know it. Nevertheless, using that full-blown technique, successive relearning in the classroom, just may take too much teacher time, but that doesn't mean they can't be using Uh, quizzing to their benefit uh, to the student's benefit they just you know probably only want to spend five to ten minutes of class doing that kind of thing.
2: Do you need to weigh that up against the danger I guess if if you're the kid that is always near the bottom in those tests and everyone else seems to get it that they disengage completely or that they lose confidence completely versus uh, becoming at that stage of the the class or that that level of the class maybe two or three times and it's inspirational. It seems like there's there's probably a a tipping point there between I'm going to keep trying this and I'm never going to get it.
1: Yeah, you certainly don't want to demoralize uh, students who are struggling, uh, but the teachers can use the outcomes of those low-stakes quizzes to at least identify those students who are struggling and then maybe do a slightly different kind of intervention to help them out. Uh, if that makes sense, so it 's like, "Oh wow, the student continues to struggle before they get demoralized. Uh, maybe I can develop a, a simple lesson to help them understand the content so it 's the idea that not only these quizzes just help the students learn the content, but they can provide formative evaluation for teachers uh, so they have a better sense about what the students are struggling with and hence how to shape uh, their instruction later on in class. But yeah, it's definitely a fine line between uh, helping a student realize that they could do something versus uh, maybe showing a student that they struggle and demoralizing them. I mean, in our own research, admittedly using successive relearning, what really shocked us to begin with, is first of course all students struggle to learn difficult concepts this way but after two or three sessions of the struggling where they come back and finally could retrieve this content even the ones who were the worst students they tell us they can't believe they can learn so much content that they've never learned so much content so so well in the past so it sure, part of it can be demoralizing, but like you said, if they finally get it, it's almost liberating. It's like, wow, I can really learn this content if I just use the right strategies. But unfortunately, a lot of the best strategies come with struggle, right? I mean, it, it's, they're not the easiest strategies, even though they're the best strategies.
2: So. Yeah, I guess it's a case of the teacher knowing the student's Pretty well to know when to okay. I'm going to give you a a different type of homework this week. For example, you know we're going to we're going to or I'm going to take you aside for ten minutes and do a slightly different lesson with you. At the point where that struggle gets too much for each individual, and I imagine that point's different for every individual as well.
1: Every individual, and certainly, I mean, it puts a lot of burden on an individual teacher, right, to shape their uh, instruction in a way that's going to pinpoint, um, say, groups of struggling students. That said, um, are you familiar with John Hattie's work? Mm, yes. Yeah. Invisible learn uh, Learning? Yeah. And that's all about formative evaluation and how uh, teachers need to leverage an understanding of student strengths and weaknesses to shape their instruction in a way to really help all the students along. Uh, by no means is this an easy thing to do.
2: And I guess my, my final question then is if anyone's listening to this and sit thinking, mm, I, haven't, I haven't really done this with my class yet and we're five months out from the exams, is it too late to, to, to start in, in effect?
1: Not at no, not all. In fact, five months would be great. The, the advice I would give, however, if, if they want to develop a successive relearning program for their students to use outside of the classroom would be really knowing that it does take a long time to successive rele- relearn. I think really the onus is on the teachers to decide what are the most important concepts that these students need to learn and take those subset of the concepts and have the students use successive relearning outside of the class to learn them, to not overburden the students. Um, so it, it, the idea is less is more to some degree, so whatever they really want the students to know well. Um, they help the students utilize successively relearning to master it basically but no five months is plenty of time for a great deal of information uh to learn a great deal but yeah it's probably time to start because i'm sure the students have a tsunami of content they need to learn and uh yeah good luck to all of them i mean i I would i would start studying now
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tez podagogy We hope that you found it informative and helpful. Please join us again next week.